our text today is the first chapter of Exodus. So if you would please stand, we will read the first chapter of Exodus. Hear the word of God. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, and all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number. But Joseph was already in Egypt. And Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he says to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we are. Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and in the event of war, they also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. And the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor vigorously rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other was named Puah. And he said, when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. And it came about because the midwives feared God that he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile River, and every daughter you are to keep alive. You may be seated. For those of you who were not here last week, we began a new study of the book of uh, Exodus. And so I want to just hit the highlights of that sermon because we had a very small crowd. And I want you to see the backdrop of what we're going to say today as we expound the first chapter. The first five books of the Bible, we call the books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are the foundation of everything we believe as Christians, with Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. If we don't understand and appreciate what's in the first five books of the Bible, 
We're not going to understand the gospel. We're not going to understand Christian ethics. And our worldview will be shameful. These first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. In fact, most people don't realize this. Moses may have invented alphabetic writing, writing in letters. You know, the Egyptians, the Assyrians, and all the rest had various figures of speech and hieroglyphics, pictures. But Moses may have been the one to invent alphabetic writing. People have often drawn a dichotomy between Moses and Jesus. The Jews believe in Moses, we believe in Jesus. The God of Moses was a different God than the God of Jesus. The way of salvation that Moses presented was a different way of salvation than what Christ presented. In fact, that's the reason Christ came to earth, is to give us a plan of salvation based on grace, received through faith, so that we no longer will be bound to the old salvation by works and merit that Moses and the Jews tried to impose upon us. Not one bit of truth in that dichotomy. So last week we went through verse after verse after verse in the New Testament to see the relationship between Moses and Jesus. And we saw that not once was there a dichotomy. That Jesus never jumped on the Jews for believing in Moses' law. He jumped on them for not obeying it. And he also jumped on them because even though they believed it, they often misinterpreted it as being a way to salvation. And it wasn't a way of salvation. Salvation has always been by grace through faith alone. So there was no real dichotomy between Moses and Jesus. And we saw that in a variety of ways. We saw the, the story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man was in hell. The, the Lazarus was in heaven. And the rich man was burning in hell. And he said to Abraham, send me, uh, send back to earth somebody raised from the dead to save my five brothers from these flames. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Even if somebody arose from the dead and preached to them, they would not believe it. Now, how do you reckon he was talking about? There was only one person that had risen from the dead. But the answer that Moses gave, and Jesus is telling the parable, Please send my brother somebody who's been raised from the dead. And Abraham and Jesus, telling the parable, say, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe their gospel, they will not believe mine. And they will not believe a person even if God raised him from the dead. So that's a very strong story that shows that there's really no dichotomy between Jesus and Moses. And then we also looked at that great historical event, mountaintop experience. Here we go again. This mountaintop experience where Moses and, and uh, Elijah and Peter and James and John and Jesus are on this mountain, and Jesus' face starts shining brighter than the noonday sun, and it's pitch dark. And who appeared? but Moses and Elijah. Who were those men? Those were old men that had been dead for a long time. Moses was God's instrument in writing the law. Elijah was the man that God used to call people back to that law. And there's Peter and James and John, and there Jesus himself, perfect harmony, and then Luke tells us what they were talking about. He describes their conversation with one word. They were talking about Christ's departure. 
And the Greek word departure, I'll pronounce for you like I did last week, and see if you know there's any English words like the Greek word for departure. Exodus. They were talking about Christ's exodus, how that he was going to come to earth just like God was the liberator of Israel in the Old Testament and led them out of slavery into new life. So the Lord Jesus Christ would come, and he would, through humiliation and exaltation, deliver his people from their sins and lead them out of slavery and death through the Red Sea to the promised land. And you see how important the book of Exodus is. They were talking about the message of the book of Exodus. Now, I said these five books are the foundation of Christianity. Uh, so let me give you a word that uh, catches the gist of the message of each of these books if you weren't here last week. If you were to catch the gist of Genesis in one word, it would be covenant that the book of Genesis is the story on how redemption is rooted in covenant, how that the creator of the world, by sovereign grace, entered into an eternal bond of friendship with his people in which they live a communion of life together and in which God gives his people a sovereignly dictated order of life to show them how redeemed people should live. So the key idea in the book of Genesis, which we studied, what, for 100 sermons, is the idea of covenant. Then we come to the New Testament, uh, to Exodus, and uh, we would summarize the book of Exodus in one word, and that word is not laws. Most people today, when they come to the book of Exodus and the Moses with covenant, uh, covenant with Moses, they see it as simply a book of laws that we are to obey or be punished for. No such thing. There are laws, but the primary message of the book of Exodus is redemption. And we're going to come back and spend most of our time talking about the meaning of that word redemption. That the book of Exodus is not how you can earn God's law, uh, favor, it is what God has done to redeem you from the law's condemnation. And then we come to the book of Leviticus. And the book of Leviticus is about holiness. A holy God demands a holy people, and that holiness of life must encompass the entirety of their existence in this earth. And then we come to the book of Numbers. And the book of Numbers is the, uh, a book of inheritance, that God has given us an inheritance, and the book of Numbers tells us what that inheritance is and how we are to take possession of it. And then the book of Deuteronomy, which Moses wrote right before they entered the promised land, uh, its theme is victory and joy that they have at peace, victory and peace, that they've been wandering through the wilderness now for 40 years, and they're on the cusp of entering the promised land, and God is giving them fulfilling promises. God is giving them victory over all these Canaanite people groups, and God is giving them peace and the restoration of order as they establish his order in the occupation of Canaan. First five books of the Bible. I'm going to give you a test going out the door. What's the theme of numbers? So you better be ready. So that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now let's go back, and we're still just introducing from last week. Uh, we uh, are going to introduce the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus uh, is divided clearly into three sections. Now, before I go on, you remember a couple Sundays ago, 
I preached on the subject of how important it is for Christians to read and understand the Old Testament. And that the reason Christians don't have much hope, encouragement, endurance, unity, is because we hardly ever read the Old Testament. So this morning and last week, we're telling you not only how important it is to read the Old Testament, but how to read the Old Testament. I think most people don't read the Old Testament today because they don't know how. They think it's a book of stories, allegorical stories that have secret points to them. They think it's an obsolete book written to a people in a previous time that had a, pre a, a different kind of culture. They don't know how to read the book of Exodus. So the things that I'm telling you today and last time are, are helps toward that end. To, uh, one time I had a young architect friend, smart as a whip, and a young man, he was brilliant. And I had just led him to Christ. And he uh, didn't know much about Christianity. And he was just like a new little baby. He was really devouring the Word of God. And I said, now one important thing to do is to read the Old Testament. He said, but I don't know anything about the Old Testament. Well, I said, there are no shortcuts. There are no pills to take. So here's what I'm going to do. Now, this was a 30-some-year-old, brilliant young architect. I said, here's what I want you to do. He had some children. I said, I want you to go down to the Bible bookstore, and I want you to buy a book by a woman named Catherine Voss. Everybody get that down. Catherine Voss, V-O-S, who wrote the best Bible story book for little children ever written. Uh, she, she was reformed. Her daddy's name was Johannes Voss, and he was a famous Calvinist. Her granddaddy's name was even more famous. His name was Gerhardus Voss, and she was a third-generation Reformed Presbyterian. And she wrote this book called Storybook of the Bible. And I said to the architect, go get this book, and if you want to do it in secret, do it in secret, but I want you to read <coughs> Catherine Voss, the storybook of the Bible. That's the best way and the quickest way that I know for you to get a good handle on the Old Testament. And if any of you men want to get a good handle on the Old Testament and you don't want to admit it, uh, go secretly buy Catherine Voss's Bible storybook and read it, and you'll be surprised how quickly you will have a good handle on the Old Testament. So the book of Exodus, divided into three sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 18. And if you want to summarize chapters 1 through 18 in the book of Exodus, use the word redemption. That's what it's about. It's how God redeemed his people. It's about the Exodus uh, leading the people through the Red Sea, drowning uh, the Egyptian soldiers in the Red Sea. It's about the establishing of Passover and the ceremonial celebration of our redemption out of death and sin and slavery. So the first 18 verses, chapters, of the book of Exodus are about redemption. The second section is chapter 19 through chapter 24. And there's a couple words you could use to uh, define that chapter. I use them back and forth. One, one is reconstruction, and, or another word is sanctification. So the point of verse chapters 19 through 24 is the reconstruction or sanctification of the people of God. Uh, what's in that chapter? Well, in chapter 19, you have God establishing 
the Mosaic Covenant with the people of God at the base of Mount Sinai. Chapter 20, you have the Ten Commandments. Chapter 21 through chapter 24, you have all those little case laws that explain how the Ten Commandments are to be applied in society. Third section is chapter 25 through chapter 40, and that third section you can entitle Reconciliation. Because what that section is about is about the blueprints for building the tabernacle and then how to create the veils and the curtains and all the various pieces of furniture that will be used in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the center of Israel's worship. It uh, symbolized the fact that God had been reconciled with his people through redemption and the tabernacle was the home of God on earth. It's where Israel could come and have fellowship with the living God. So there's the outline of the book of Exodus. Does it sound legalistic to you? Does it sound like the book of Exodus is about a bunch of laws that you've got to obey in order to earn God? No. The book of Exodus is chapters 1 through 18 on redemption. Chapters 19 through 24 on reconstruction or sanctification and the renewal of our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then chapters 25 through 40 is on reconciliation with the blueprints of the tabernacle. So there's nothing legalistic about Exodus at all. It's a wonderful figurative summary of the basic elements of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's go now back to Exodus. This first chapter I love. It is full of truth. It's full of actual historical things. These are not myths. These are not fairy tales. What we're going to be reading about in the book of Exodus really did happen and Jesus and Moses and Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration conversed about what all of those things in the book of Exodus meant as they were engulfed in the glory cloud. Now, I like to point out, and I pointed out last week, and those of you who weren't here, you got to get this. I love to point out that the first word in the book of Exodus is not now. And if you have an English version of the Bible, like I do, it begins with the word now in English. Except that's not the word it begins with in Hebrew. The book of, of Genesis of Exodus in Hebrew begins with the word and. Now, that's a funny way to start a book, don't you think? Can you imagine picking up a book and all of a sudden the very first paragraph says, and such and such? Or you were supposed to write a paper for your teacher and you begin with the word and? You're going to have points taken off for that. There's got to be a real good reason to begin a book with the word and. And there is a good reason. Because that word and tells you that this covenant that God made with Moses is not a brand spanking new one, but it's one that flows out of and develops the thoughts of the Abrahamic covenant in the book of Genesis. So there's no division between Abraham and Moses. We have people today in conservative Reformed churches who say that uh, the book of Moses is a book of laws, the book of Genesis is a book of faith, so we today as Christians have to jump over the head of Moses and get back to Abraham and a gospel of faith alone. But there's no such thing. That's a false dichotomy. That Moses' book is simply the outflow 
and the development of the covenant of Abraham that we read about in the book of Genesis. And there's something else to notice. Notice also all the names in the first chapter of Exodus. There they are. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, etc. Verse 5, And all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were seventy in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. So what does that tell you? The people that are involved with this covenant bond that God is making with Moses are the same people we read about in the book of Genesis. They're the same people involved in the bond of friendship that God established with Abraham in the book of Genesis. So we got the same people in both books. We got the word and. Now let's see if we got the same God. Uh, look at chapter 6. Verse 2, God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am Jehovah, I'm the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, Lord, Jehovah, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. And I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. And furthermore, I've heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians have, are holding them in bondage, and I remembered my covenant. Now, does this sound like Moses is starting a brand new relationship and a brand new religion and a brand new covenant? We got the same people. We got to and, and now we got the same God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, El Shaddai, Yahweh, Jehovah is the God of Moses. Look at Exodus chapter 19 and verse 4. And you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings, bore you on eagle's wings, and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples on the face of the earth. So here you have the God of Abraham speaking to Moses, renewing the covenant that God made with Abraham. And now turn to Exodus 32. And of course, there's dozens of these we could look at. Exodus 32. Uh, I threw my note away too quick. Somewhere there in Exodus 32, verse 4. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And of course, that was a lie. This shows you how that Israel needed to be purged. But the point is, they were being punished now because they turned from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. So, there are the three reasons why we know that Abraham and Moses are in perfect agreement. Exodus starts with and. People that were in the covenant with Moses are the same people that were in a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the God 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of Moses. So when you read the Old Testament, I want you to read it like an angle. I didn't draw a picture of this. But it's like an opening up angle like this. But that's the way you read the Old Testament. And then you have that angle, and you have a series of waves getting bigger and bigger from the very beginning. Now that whole angle is God's covenant of grace with his people. That first wave is God's covenant with Adam after the fall, when God promised that he would crush the serpent's head through the seed of the woman. Then after the covenant God made with Adam, God made a covenant with Noah. And that's the covenant of perseverance. And God said, Noah, I'm going to preserve history. I'm going to preserve this creation until all of my redemptive purposes have been accomplished. Then after that, there's another wave. And that is a covenant that God made with Abraham. And in that covenant, God said, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people down through your generations in an everlasting covenant. You see, it's all the same covenant, see? And then there's another wave. And that's the covenant God made with Moses. And in that covenant, God promised redemption, sanctification, and reconciliation. Still the same covenant. And then the last covenant in the Old Testament was the covenant with David, wherein God promised that he would have a king on this earth that was the son of David and the son of God, and that he would build a kingdom that would overcome all other opposing kingdoms and build God a house where he could live on earth. Last Old Testament covenant was that one. And then in the New Testament, you have the consummation of all the previous covenants in the new covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is simply the final opening up and development of all these covenants of the Old Testament. Now, here's how we're taught to read the Old Testament today by people called dispensationalists. Here's how we're taught to do it. God made a covenant with Adam. Then God made a covenant with Noah. We still got this. God made a covenant with Noah, and he said, Noah, you know that covenant I made with Adam? Forget it. We're starting a new covenant here with you. And then history proceeds, and God makes a covenant with Abraham. God comes to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, you remember that covenant I made with Noah? It's abrogated. We're starting out brand new. Time goes on. God makes a covenant with, uh, with uh, Moses. Moses, you remember that covenant I made with uh, Abraham? It's no longer in existence. That was a covenant by faith. Now we've got a covenant by works. Then he had another covenant with David. He said, David, you remember that covenant that I made with uh, Moses? It's no longer in effect. We've got a brand new covenant. New Testament, Jesus, you remember all those covenants I made in the Old Testament? They're all null and void. We have a new covenant that has no relationship to any of the covenants that are found anywhere in the Old Testament. <laughs> and all that's a lie. I'm telling you, those people lie to you when they talk like that. That there is a unity to the entirety of Scripture. And the more you read the Old Testament, the more you'll appreciate that unity. So we come back here to Exodus, and we see the first third of the book is about redemption. Now, there are two aspects to redemption. Section is basically on the plagues, the destruction of Egypt economically, socially, 
agriculturally every area. And then it has the Passover celebrating the destruction of Egypt. The Red Sea delivering the Hebrew people from the bondage of, of uh, Exodus. I want you to see that redemption has two parts to it. Redemption has two parts to it. The first part is deliverance. That when God redeems a people, he delivers them from, in this instance, slavery, death, the corruption of the Egyptian people that would destroy Israel. So redemption involves deliverance, deliverance from sin, deliverance from Satan, deliverance from death, deliverance from slavery. The other side of redemption is judgment. So that redemption includes, on one hand, the deliverance of God's people, and on the other hand, it involves judgment upon God's enemies. Now, we have emphasized this over and over because this is another place where most people do not understand the Old Testament. And they don't understand the Bible and they don't understand God's dealing with people. The way God saves us from our enemies is not by rapturing us out from the presence of our enemies and pulling us out of the danger. The way God saves us from our enemies is by destroying our enemies. That's the, one of the most important things we must see in the first 19, 18 chapters of Exodus. What was God doing in all those? God was destroying this whole nation. He was destroying it socially, politically, agriculturally, Every way you could imagine, Egypt was in shambles. And then at the end of the plagues, when Pharaoh wouldn't agree to let the children of Israel free, God killed all the firstborn of all Egyptians in Egypt, including the child of Pharaoh. So you see, how does God deliver us from our enemies? By destroying our enemies. Not by snatching us up out of the midst of them. So, redemption has two parts to it. Deliverance and judgment. So that, how's God going to deliver us from our enemies that are dominant today in the United States? not by rapturing us out of the United States, by destroying the United States, unless it repents. It's a serious thing. What happens then when a people have been delivered and the enemy has been destroyed? What's the effect of those things? One, the fulfillment of promise, and two, the creation of a theocracy. Now that might sound theological and irrelevant, but I'm going to show you that's right at the heart of the gospel. That once God has delivered us from our enemies, he begins to fulfill in our lives all the promises that he made to us throughout the scriptures. There are so many promises uh, in the uh, book of uh, Genesis that are specifically fulfilled in Exodus. For instance, turn to Genesis 47, 27. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. Genesis 46, verses 3 and 4. 
And he said, I am God, the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. And I will go down with you to Egypt. And I will also surely bring you up again. Joseph will close your eyes. Turn to Genesis 35. And verse 9. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram, and he blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. And the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you. And I will give the land to your descendants after you. So these are specific promises in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the first chapter of Genesis, uh, of Exodus. That God says, I'm going to make you numerous. I'm going to make you uh, a great company of people. Kings are going to come forth from you. I'm going to give you the whole land to build a culture on that's glorifying to me. So we could just go on the rest of the morning looking at these verses. In fact, let's look at a couple more. Turn to Genesis 28 and verse 13. Verse 14, uh, 13, yeah. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be with you. And then another in Genesis 15 and verse, uh, let's start with verse 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who came forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens, count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. So over and over, God's promising his people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he's going to give them an Incredible population growth. Incredible, unprecedented population growth. Uh, did you see, in, to go back to the first chapter of Exodus, do you see how unprecedented this is? You've heard of the specific promise. And verse 7, chapter 1. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Look at all those verbs. Did you see all those verbs? Uh, Egypt was just crammed, packed full of these Hebrews. And verse 9, And the new king who didn't know Joseph, a new Pharaoh who didn't know who he was, never heard of him, he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we are. Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and in the event of war, they also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So there are so many uh, of these covenant people in the land of Egypt that they have Pharaoh scared to death. They're mightier than we are. They're more numerous than we are. And if we ever go to war, they'll probably fight with our enemies against us. So Pharaoh was scared to death of these people because of their number 
because of the, their uh, rapid growth, because of their owning some of the best real estate in all of Egypt, because of their great influence on the whole country, Pharaoh said, we've got to do something about this. Because these Christians are going to ruin us. There are so many of them. They are so strong. And I'm afraid if they ever decided to oppose us, we would lose that battle. And what Pharaoh is saying is, God's fulfilling a promise that he made to them many generations before. Uh, an unprecedented population growth coupled with unprecedented population decline in Egypt. Those are the two things that God does when he goes to deliver his people and destroy his enemies. He causes their population to grow. These people were extremely fertile. When they first went it down to Egypt several centuries before, they only had 70-some 70, 70 people, direct descendants of Jacob. And by the time they left, several generations later, they had three million people. Now, where did all these people come from? Surely not 70 people produced all 3 million people. Well, there were three possible sources. Number one, the descendants of Jacob were very fertile people. And they had a lot of babies. And God blessed them with very few miscarriages. But there weren't just the 70-some people, the direct descendants of Jacob that went to Egypt. Uh, Jacob had several servants and people in his employment that at one time Abraham could form a whole army and beat two other armies. So you have the descendants of Jacob, fertile, you have these employees of Jacob and, and those men, and there were several of them, and they were always having children. And there's a third source. Egyptians. Converted Egyptians. You remember Joseph was a great evangelist, and he was always trying to lead his brothers to Christ tried to lead Potiphar to Christ, tried to lead everybody to Christ, that I'm sure he led several Egyptians to Christ. So between the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their, their uh, employees and the descendants of the, of the uh, Egyptians, there was three million people there. And so what was the solution for Pharaoh? Make them slaves. Let's take away their freedom. Let's make them slaves and make them work hard in unnatural ways so they don't have the time nor the energy to rebel against us. So in verse 11 of chapter 1, so they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. Now, these were people who owned the best real estate in Egypt. The Egyptians owned the land of Goshen. These were the most powerful people in Egypt. And because of that, Hero made them slaves. Verse 12. But the more they afflicted the Hebrews, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread out, 
so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. Our enemies never learn, do they? They never learn that the blood of the martyrs is a seed of the church. They've never learned that the more you beat us down, the stronger we are and the more numerous we become. So Pharaoh made them slaves, put them to unbearable hard labor, and that only caused the Hebrews to grow all the more and become more and more numerous. And verse 14, they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed upon them. Now, you know, God also prophesied this in the book of Genesis. God prophesied that he was going to cause his people to grow and prosper in the land of Goshen. And remember, what, remember why he sent them to Egypt in the first place. He sent them to Egypt to be an incubator so they would not be dominated by Canaanite immorality. And that worked for a while. But then after a while, the Hebrews start imitating the sins of the Egyptians. And the Hebrews became immoral like Egyptians. And the Hebrews began copying their religious practices and started worshiping false gods. Not all Israel compromised. But there were some that did compromise, and so Israel needed purged. It needed discipline. It needed fatherly rebuke. So God had Pharaoh put them into slavery. And so they fell from this high, powerful condition, condition of slavery, because God is trying to purge the evil out of them so that they'll be prepared for 40 years in the wilderness so they'll be prepared to occupy the land of Canaan. This is a loving God chastening his people. But not all the people deserve chastening. And so we're told about one of my favorite stories two of my favorite people in the whole Bible. And those two people called Shua and Shifra and Pua. How'd you like to have some good friends named Shifra and Pua? Well, the world will remember these two women. The world will remember them and never forget them. They were faithful at the risk of their own lives when other people were compromising. So let's see why Shifra and Pua were such heroic and godly women. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives sort of nurses. One of them was named Shifra. The other was named Pua. Now, I'm sure they had more midwives than just two in the light of the population growth. But two of them were, were Pua and Shifra. So, Pharaoh said in verse 16, when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth, this is how much the, the uh, Pharisees were afraid of them. You're helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool. If it's a son, you shall put him to death. If it's a daughter, then she shall live. But 
the midwives feared God. Got us in slavery now. You got the upper hand on us. Making his word so work so hard it's killing us. There's nothing we can do to resist you because you're so powerful. We are not afraid of you. Have you ever said that to a powerful man? Powerful businessman? Powerful politician? We're not afraid of you. Try it sometime. So they say, we're not afraid of you. We, we fear God, not you. And do not, did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So these little Hebrew midwives disobeyed the most powerful man on earth. He said, I'm so afraid of these Hebrews that all the little boy babies I want killed. And they said, no, sir. We are not going to obey your bloodthirsty law. Verse 18. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, I mean, every time I read this, I laugh. This is a joke. It's obviously not the truth. Have you killed these little boys? The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they're so vigorous that they give birth before the midwife can get to them. <laughs> not a greater truth than that. They were lying through their teeth to the most powerful man on earth. They not only disobeyed his laws, they were making him look like a fool. Now, who were these little midwives? Liars. They lied to the most powerful man on earth. Lawbreakers broke the law of the most powerful man of earth and looked him right in the face. Say, we're not afraid of you. Why didn't you kill them? Well, these, these, these Hebrew women have babies too fast. Nothing true about it. So what did God do to these two little ladies? I'm going to punish you all for lying. I'm going to punish you all for deception. You're guilty of deception. You're di guilty of disobeying the law. You're, disobey you're guilty of lying, and now you've got to be punished for committing all these sins. No, that is not what God did. Look at verse 20. So, that's my favorite word in that sentence. So, God was good to the midwives. They broke the Pharaoh's law. They deceived him, and they lied to him. And so God was good to them. And the people multiplied and became very mighty. The more they deceived Pharaoh, the more they disobeyed him, the more they lied to him, the more the Hebrews grew in number. And the stronger they became. And the more threatening they were. Twenty-one. And it came about because the midwives feared God. That God established Households for them. 
because you feared me and you didn't fear Pharaoh, I'm going to get your husbands and I'm going to have you, uh, help you have great families. Pharaoh was hardened in his con uh, position, verse 21. So he says, every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile River. And then we begin the story of Moses. But now, how do you explain these two little women? I thought, this is what people will tell you, I thought we were supposed to always obey the law and never break the law. You know, there are Calvinists out there today that believe that the American War of Independence was unbiblical. It was unbiblical for the Americans to declare their independence of Britain and to fight a war of independence. They believe it's unbiblical to disobey the law of God. We are to obey the law of God and be good little citizens. What, what happened here? God blessed these two women because they broke the law and then lied. And explain that. That emphasizes the limitless boundaries of God's authority and the limited boundaries of human authority. That Christians have the responsibility when the civil magistrate imposes upon us godless laws that would require us to disobey him, we must disobey civil law. Say that again. Oh, someday we may have to do it. That if the civil government ever orders us to do something that would require disobedience to God, must disobey the civil government, whatever the price. Because God is never to be disobeyed. We must always obey God over man. A church did that once. A church did that in the very beginning of the pandemic when nobody really knew what was going on. And the uh, mayor of Cumming made an order that he wanted all churches to close on Sunday or else We met, he, send, he said he would send his little police force around to punish any churches that disobeyed his law. So you remember what we did? We locked the front door and told everybody, don't sit in the vestibule. That way, if anybody comes on the front door trying to get us, we'll be in here worshiping and singing and we will be able to answer the door. So whenever the state becomes a threat to your family, you are to put your family before the state. Whenever the law, the state determines to be the God of your life, you may not bow before Pharaoh. Get the picture. I mean, Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the world here. He just probably, it's the Pharaoh, that just whipped uh, the people that had controlled Egypt for several centuries before. I mean, this was a powerful man. These little ladies looked him right in the eye. We are not afraid of you. Now, the only person that can say that to a Pharaoh 
is somebody who does fear God. She fears God more than she fears death. So, two things to remember, and I'll quit. Two things to remember. God's authority is limitless. It has no boundaries. God can command you to do whatever he wants you to do, and you must obey. In whatever area of life, whatever God commands you to do, you must obey it. Gladly, from the heart. And if any man or any human institution calls upon you to do something, that's contrary to the law of God, without thinking, without hesitation, you must be able to say, I'm not afraid of you. I'm afraid of God. I will not obey your law. So praise the Lord that even though there were compromisers in among the Hebrews, God wants us to remember there were faithful ones too, like the two little midwives. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the memory of these two women. Lord, they were just little peasant women. They stood down, the mighty Pharaoh himself. Help us not to be afraid of anybody in our culture today. Wants us to bow down to them as if they were God. Help us to be courageous. Help us to be humble. Help us to be steadfast. Help us not to comp uh, compromise the gospel for anybody. Help us not to obey any of man's laws at the cost of disobeying yours. For Christ's sake, amen.